Oh, we would love it if you took out one of those cards that you see in front of you and uh, fill that out. It'll take you about 30 seconds to do so. And, uh, you can put it in those uh, two little black boxes on the back of the auditorium, or you can give it to me uh, after uh, the service is over. That's just so we can express our appreciation for you being here with us this morning. I want to recognize uh, just for a moment uh, Memorial Day tomorrow. Uh, we know many people have fought and died and sacrificed much uh, for this country. We want to honor their sacrifice and make special mention um, of them. And thank you to all in, in our congregation that, that has served in our armed forces and in, in, in our country. So remember all of those families in prayer as we go about this, this weekend. Uh, this morning, is going to be our last in our series entitled The Faith-Filled uh, Family. Remember that uh, our definition of faith, as we looked at several weeks ago, faith is this spiritual seeing of God's fingerprints in, uh, in the world, which, which leads to firm conviction in His power and His wisdom that's evident in creation, that's evident all, all around. Faith is this uh, spiritual tasting of God's promises, uh, which leads to confident assurance in the complete fulfillment of those promises. And someone who possesses this kind of faith, the faith that we've been talking about throughout this series, not, not just in talk, but genuinely and sincerely, is one who believes in the weight of sin, as we looked at, is one who's confident in God's character, is one who obeys, though they may not fully understand. It's one who holds on to God's promises with, with patience, with endurance. It's one who believes in the impossible, one who believes in impossible promises, not, not based upon the probability of those promises coming to fruition, but based upon the reliability of the one who made the promise of the promise maker. It's one who elevates God's purposes above even their own personal security. It's one who considers the pleasures in Jesus as superior to anything else. And it's one who sets their eyes on the unseen through dreadful adversity, holding God's hand through the Red Sea, holding God's hand through adversity. This kind of faith that sees the hand of God, that, that tastes the sweetness of His promises that He's made to us. It's best witnessed by example. You, you, you can say that you have faith. You can say that. You can claim that all day long, but that faith is only made evident by your deeds by what you do. And that's why the Hebrew author lists the Old Testament characters in Hebrews chapter 11 and their deeds to show you, to show us what real faith looks like so that all of us in the 21st century may be filled with boldness and confidence and courage to emulate that same kind of daring faith in your own life. Real Sincere, genuine faith is extraordinarily powerful. It carries a massive influence, even just a, even just a small bit of it. The size of a mustard seed 
in the lives of those around it for generations to come. In, in fact, everyone here, every, 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 every person here has, has seen genuine faith and has felt its influence. I think about our dear sister, Miss Mary Lou Ford, who made it her mission to make sure everyone in this church felt the love of Jesus and was welcomed. I, I think about our brother, Barry Keene, who lived to encourage other people so that they might know Jesus a little bit better. That's Hebrews 11, faith revealed. And time would fail us to mention so many other people, but this shows us that when you display a Hebrews 11 kind of faith, true biblical faith, then your actions in the present, they ripple out into generations to come. And you exalt the blessed name of God who alone is worthy. A fortified family is a faith-filled family. So this morning we're going to close our series and look at the last part of Hebrews chapter 11, looking in verse 31. So take out your Bible there with me, if you will, and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 31. The text says, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, remember with me the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua. Uh, remember that after a period of 40 years, the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, they're ready to cross the Jordan. They're uh, ready to inherit the promise that God made to Abraham and his family of the promised land, of, of a land flowing with milk and honey. So Joshua, de- so Joshua decides to send out spies um, across the Jordan into the land of Canaan to view their strength, and they come to the fortified city of Jericho. And remember... By this time, Jericho, if you read in in, uh, Joshua chapter 2, you'll see that Jericho had heard about God and his deeds in parting the waters of the Red Sea, um, how uh, evil kingdoms were, were conquered, and they heard that God's people were on the move into their territory into their region. And, and the text says that Jericho was trembling. They were scared to death. They were afraid because of the stories of Israel's magnificent God and everything that he had done uh, within the world. So the people of Jericho, they're probably paranoid at this point at the thought of the Israelite spies making their way into the city. And, and that, that's why when the spies did come, they had to be discreet. They had to be secretive. And that's probably why they went where they did. Notice with me in the book of Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. 
So the spies here, when they come into the land of Jericho, they, they, they choose to take cover in the house of, if you may be reading another translation that says harlot. Um, they, uh, they choose to lodge in this uh, the, in Rahab's home, whose her designation was a harlot, a prostitute. And that, that makes a lot of sense uh, when, you, when, you, when you think about it, because the inhabitants there, they were probably accustomed to seeing strange men going and coming from this dwelling, uh, from this dwelling place, the house of Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. That title, that title, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. Scripture, in fact, uses it several times to identify this person. We see it in the book of James, James chapter 2, remember. And if you'd like to turn with me there, James chapter 2, verse 25. This is the New American Standard Version. James chapter 2, verse 25 says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Scripture, as we see when Rahab appears in, uh, in, in most, insta- in, in most insta- instances, Scripture seems to love to highlight the fact that Rahab was a harlot, that Rahab was a prostitute. And I think that's very interesting because this identification, it, it has no seeming relevance at all in the flow of the story. The text doesn't have to mention that fact. The text doesn't have to mention her disreputable past for the story to make sense. You look at the text in Joshua, beginning in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua doesn't have to mention that detail. That detail of her life, it could have very well been completely left out of the story. And, and, and the point of the story would have marched on in the same direction. Likewise, the text in James that we just read, James doesn't have to mention that. The point in the text there uh, is that Rahab's faith, it was revealed by the work she displayed of assisting the people of God in the time of their distress. James's usage of her title, harlot, as it's rendered in the New American Standard, it in all reality doesn't really aid the main point of what he's trying to get across. And likewise, likewise, we see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 11. The text in Hebrews doesn't have to mention that title. The, the Hebrew author could have very well said this, by faith Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And that would have been sufficient. That would have been plenty. That would have been enough information to get the main point across. But over and over and over again, it seems like Scripture wants to make you keenly aware of this person's sordid, dishonorable past. Even when the mention of that past doesn't support the main thrust of the argument that, that, that's being purported within the text. One might even possibly argue that the story would be better if the text left that little detail out. Because, let's be honest this morning, probably many of you are cringing in your seat just when I mention Rahab's loose occupation and, and read Scripture that way. But still, 
That's the way that Scripture identifies her. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. And I want to ask you this morning, I want you to think about this. What if that was your identification or something like it? So-and-so, insert your name, the drunkard. So-and-so, insert your name, the liar. So-and-so, insert your name, the cheat. So-and-so, insert your name, the pornography addict. What, what, if, what if you had this title, this disreputable title that loomed over your head, and the first thought that entered into everybody's mind when they see you is, there he is, there she is, the fill-in-the-blank. Or what if you had a title like Rahab in your own mind that was brought about by the shame of your past that's, proking and that's, that's, that's poking, that's prodding you continuously, saying, look at you, look at you. Who, who are you? Who are you to think that God is going to accept you? Don't you think, don't you think for one second that God will ever let you that close to His holy presence? All those passages that say that God is a God of grace, that God is a God of love, that God is a God of faithfulness, and that He's like a father to His children, they don't apply to somebody like you that carry that kind of a title. Maybe you do. Maybe you do have a title such as that. Maybe you are someone like Rahab in your shameful past. It keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. It keeps being brought up in your mind. It keeps reappearing within your mind's eye and whispers in your ear, you're nothing. God will never accept someone like you. But what's so ironic I think, in the case of Rahab, is that when Scripture brings up her contemptible, debased, ignoble, shameful past, it uses that. It uses that identification in a context that exalts her and lifts her up as someone that the world should look to as a noble example. Remember the text in, in, in Joshua, we see that Rahab the harlot was the one who helped the spies. Rahab was the hero in the story uh, and, and herself declared when no one else around her believed. No one else around in the city of Jericho submitted to, the, to, to Yahweh like she did. She declared verbally and in her heart, the text says, the Lord your God, Yahweh, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Likewise, in the text in James, as we read, we see that Rahab is an example. She's an example of one who was justified in the sight of God. Rahab, the harlot, is an example to us in the book of James of one who possesses a faith that is alive and active, that's displayed by her works. And in Hebrews, Rahab goes from harlot to hero, in Hebrews chapter 11, and is mentioned with many others that display biblical faith. And the author, I think this is, it's fascinating that the author 
of, um, of Hebrews here, he could have so easily left out that little detail, so very easily. He could, have, he could have left it out, swept it up under the rug, and just told us the good stuff, um, but he doesn't do that. He says that she's a hero of faith, even with a past like that. So, I want to ask, what's going on here? What's, 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 the, what's the gist of this? Why, why does Scripture mention Rahab's past repeatedly? What's the significance of the Hebrew author mentioning Rahab's past, and what, what does that have to do with biblical faith? What does, that have, what, is, what does that have to do with what we're talking about within this series? Here's the significance, I believe. God loves to redeem unworthy sinners like Rahab, like all of the Old Testament characters that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 that are filled with flaws and imperfections and shortcomings. And like us today who have shameful pasts. And he loves to elevate those people to the status of hero when they step out in faithful obedience in the present, all because, not because of anything that's inherently good within them, but because of the grace of Almighty God. Every single one of us has a past. Every one of us has a past that's soiled with filthy stains of sin, guilt. You don't have to think too long or too hard about your poor choices, your bad decisions in your life that, you, that, that give you a similar guilty title that this woman possessed. But the mighty power of God is demonstrated in washing away the stains of your past by the blood of Jesus Christ. One of the very important points I think that we learn from this is that His grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, is more powerful than the shame of your past. And biblical faith, when we talk about biblical faith and attempt to understand it in this way, biblical faith is trusting in that fact, trusting that God's grace is more powerful than the shame of my past each and every day, each and every waking moment, even if I don't feel that way in the moment. Faith believes that a shameful past does not exclude the enjoyment of God's grace in the present and the promise of reward in the future. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. That doesn't mean at all that there are not consequences to sin. I'm not trying to say that uh, whatsoever. There are. And sometimes when we uh, sometimes when we sin in this world, we have to live with the consequences of, of our past choices, of our past decisions. But the truth remains that no matter your past, when you step out in humble obedience in the present and your life cries out to God like Rahab, God, you alone are worthy. You alone are God in heaven above and on earth beneath and God won't exclude you from enjoying the blessed gifts of His grace in the present and the promise of reward in the future. Brothers and sisters, that's faith. That's what faith looks like. Faith resists Satan's attempts to paint a skewed and distorted perception of God in my mind, a God whose forgiveness is weak, a God whose mercy is frail. 
And faith believes that the power of God's almighty grace is limitless to cleanse me, to wash me when I draw near to Him. And that His disposition towards me is that of a father looking upon his child when I live in surrender to Him. That's faith. Look at a second aspect of faith with me in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11. Starting in verse 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped to the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, in this passage, we, we see the beginning of his conclusion um, on, on the, the author's thoughts of faith as he mentions mighty men of the, of, of the past um, that we read within the Old Testament. Uh, but, and, and he mentions all of these accomplishments that, uh, um, that, that come about um, through these people. He mentions the, the conquering of kingdoms, the enforcing of justice, obtaining of promise, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, becoming mighty warriors who sent foreign armies away like, 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 like screaming children. Uh, and, but, but all of those accomplishments, everything that those mighty men of faith did, all of that it wasn't because, and the text says this, it wasn't because of anything remarkable or impressive or outstanding that originated within them. All of their success was because of faith in the God who alone had the power to bring about their success. They were made strong out of weakness. Notice with me a passage in Leviticus. Notice God's promise here of faithful obedience, what the outcome will be if one lives a life of faith and covenant relationship with Him. This is the New American Standard in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 7. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. We see in this passage and in, uh, in, in other passages that are similar to it, God telling His people repeatedly that He would bring about their success, that He would fight their battles, that five godly men would make a hundred wicked men run away like screaming children if they embraced faith in Him if they denied the natural urge to exalt themselves and place their confidence in God. Now, this shows us, this shows us what faith is and what faith looks like. Faith believes that the only way to succeed is to lean upon the strength of God to intervene and deliver. Now, that may seem very simple, uh, and it may be a, uh, a fact that we have um, seems like we've covered before, uh, but I think that it reveals our basic challenge, uh, the the basic temptation that we face every day, that we face every waking moment, the challenge of trusting in the word of the living God and leaning upon His strength and not exalting myself to the position that He rightfully deserves. I think that I I, I think that's 
what lies at the core, at the very core of all of our sinful inclinations, all of our corrupted, distorted desires, what drives our fallenness, our fallen nature, is that we want to be seen as something more than what we really are. It's what drives our sinful inclinations. We want glory. We want to be exalted when no real glory exists within us. I mean, just open your phones and take a look at social media and just scroll through it for about 10 seconds and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But what faith is, what faith does, is that it takes, like these heroes of old, as the author expounds upon, it takes an honest, humble look internally and realizes its true condition. It realizes its inadequacies. It realizes its deficiencies, and it casts every ounce of trust that it has at the feet of Jesus, looking to Him as its source of strength and security. And and, and it's when we embrace that kind of humility that God goes before us, that God fights our battles, defeats our enemies, and gives us this peace that surpasses understanding. Faith is made strong out of weakness because only when it is weak, only when it realizes its vulnerabilities and deficiencies and condition truly and leans upon God does it harness the power of Almighty God to intervene and to deliver. Brothers and sisters, that's faith believes wholeheartedly that the only way to truly succeed is to lean upon the strength of Almighty God. Now, lastly, this morning, as we close, look with me in the second half of verse 35 of Hebrews chapter 11, the second half of verse 35. The text says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Now, what we see here is quite a bit different than what we read previously uh, as the text mentions those mighty men of old in verses 32 uh, through, through 34, th- those who were led to some kind of victory because of their faith. Remember those people in, in the latter text that we just read a moment ago, they conquered kingdoms, they obtained promises, they put foreign armies to flight all because they place their faith in God's strength and God's power and not their own to deliver them and to intervene within their life. (coughs) Excuse me. And that ultimately led to their victory due to their faith. But I think that it's interesting here that in the next section, the part that we just read, verses 35 through 37, we see faith taking these people in the complete opposite direction, going to the complete opposite extreme. Faith here in verses 35 through 37, it leads to suffering. It leads to torture. 
It leads to imprisonment. It leads to being sawn in two alive, as Jewish tradition says Isaiah was, and it leads to death. What's going on? How could faith lead this one group of people to, to, to seeming victory, and then in the next instant, the people that, same, that embraced the same kind of biblical faith, it led them to their utter, complete demise? What's, the, what, what's going on here? What is the author trying to tell us? I think the author is telling us here that faith in God, it carries no guarantees of comfort while living within this world. The kind of comfort that everyone outside of Jesus is searching for. It, it carries no guarantees of worldly success, of no guarantees of worldly victory when this, in this life. Faith could very well lead to your death. However, what we see through these Old Testament witnesses, through these martyrs, is that victory and success in this life is not the expectation of one who embraces biblical faith. Rather, what biblical faith is striving for is the exaltation of God the glory of God, that God would be seen by all as infinitely valuable and worthy, even if suffering is the means by which God is lifted up. Here's faith. Here's biblical faith when it comes to suffering. Faith is so impassioned by the supremacy and glory of God that it views its own suffering as a means of God's exaltation. Faith, it sees with spiritual eyes. It tastes with spiritual senses that God, the God we worship and serve, the only God that exists and that possesses all powerful, is so beautiful and so precious that it uses even its suffering to point people to Him. The actions of the Old Testament martyrs, they cry out to the world and to us today, this God, this God is so worthy that He deserves every good thing that I can give, even if it leads me to my demise. In a way, Suffering, when it's endured through with, with faith, when it's, when, it endured, when, it, when it's endured through with confidence in, in God, suffering is a gift that you can give to a world that doesn't deserve it. Because when you trust in Jesus through suffering, you show others the worth of Jesus Christ when you give everything you have to stay loyal to Him. You say to the world, when you suffer and you endure faithfully through it, this is your living testimony by your actions. Christ is so valuable and so trustworthy that He is worth it. He's worth suffering for. Brothers and sisters, that is one 
of the most blessed gifts that you can give to an undeserving world because your suffering points others to the beautiful suffering of the Savior who leads those that are in Him to a place where suffering is no more. That's faith. That's biblical faith. And when all of us, when we step out in faith with a Hebrews 11 kind of faith, it shines a great light in the midst of, of, of a dark world, and it becomes a beacon of hope and of healing to a world that needs it so very badly. So I encourage all of us this morning, if you're not living this kind of faith-filled life, change. Change this morning. Go the complete opposite direction and embrace this kind of God-honoring faith because you fulfill your life's purpose when you do. This morning, if uh, anyone um, has need, if there are any prayers that uh, anyone has any, anything going on in their life that they would like to make mention of, or if you're not a Christian this morning, uh, we urge you, this is the Lord's invitation. This is an opportunity for you to embrace a relationship with Him, to know Him. Uh, you can uh, you can see him for who he is, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, who alone is, is worthy, repent of your sins, and live in continual repentance, confess faith in him, and you can be immersed in the waters of baptism this morning and begin your relationship with Jesus. If you have any need this morning, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?